The Man with the Twisted Lip by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle Dramatised by Grant Eustace with Roy Marsden as Sherlock Holmes and John Moffat as Dr. Watson. Upper Swandham Lane is a vile alley lurking behind the high wharves to the east of London Bridge. It was not ordinarily somewhere I should have expected to find a patient, and yet late one summer evening in 1889 I had to make my way there. I was in search of Isa Whitney. An hour before, his wife had burst in on me, distraught that her husband had not been home for two days. He, foolish man, was much addicted to opium, which he obtained at a den in the furthest east of the city. But until now he had always returned, twitching and shattered the same day. She knew with certainty where he was, but how could she, a young and timid woman, make her way into such a place and pluck her husband out from among the ruffians who surrounded him? So I undertook the task for her promising that I would send him home in a cab within two hours, if he were indeed at the address she had given me. Thus it was that I found myself in Upper Swandham Lane. Beside a gin shop was a steep flight of steps, worn hollow by the ceaseless tread of drunken feet, leading down to a black hole like the mouth of a cave. This was the Bar of Gold Opium Den. Inside the door I found, at the bottom of those steps, was a long, low room, full of people lying in strange, fantastic poses, and thick and heavy with the brown opium smoke. There is a bed free over there. I will fetch you up. No, thank you. I have not come to stay. What? There is a friend of mine, uh, Mr. Whitney, here, and I wish to speak with him. Are you... My God! It's Watson! Uh, oh, Whitney, thank the Lord you're here. I say, Watson... What o'clock is this? Nearly eleven. Of what day? Of Friday, June the 19th. Good heavens. I thought it was a Wednesday. It is a Wednesday. What do you want to frighten a chap for? Tell you it is Friday, man. Your wife has been waiting these two days for you. Well, I've only been here a few hours. Three pipes, four pipes. Oh, I forget how many, but I'll go home with yes, you. Yes, well, I have a cab waiting. Then I shall go in it. But I must owe something. Find what I owe, Watson. I can do nothing for myself. As I walked down the narrow passage between the rows of sleepers, holding my breath to keep out the vile, stupefying fumes of the drug, I felt a hand pluck at my coat. Walk past me. What? And then look back. Hmm? It was a thin, wrinkled, bent old man with an opium pipe dangling between his fingers. Then he turned so that none could see him but I, and the dull eyes regained their fire, and he smiled. Good evening. Holmes. As low as you can. I have excellent ears. What are you doing in this den? If you would have the great kindness to get rid of your friend, I shall be exceedingly glad to have a talk with you. Well, I, I, I can send him home in the cab I have outside. Oh, well, you may safely trust him, for he appears too limp to get into any mischief. Yes, and I must send a note to my wife. But to say you have thrown in your lot with me. Mm. Yes, do that, and then wait outside. I shall be with you in five minutes. Yes, very well. In a few moments, I had written my note 
paid Whitney's bill, led him out to the cab and seen him driven off through the darkness. Shortly afterwards, a decrepit figure emerged from the opium den, and I was walking down the street with Sherlock Holmes. After we had turned the corner, he straightened himself out. I suppose, Watson, that you imagine that I've added opium smoking to the little weaknesses of mine in which you favour me with your medical views. I was certainly surprised to find you there. No more so than I to find you. Mm. Uh, briefly, Watson, I'm in the midst of a very remarkable inquiry. And you hope to find a clue in the incoherent rambling of these sots? Well, I have done so before. But if you'd been wrecked... <laughs> my life would not have been worth an hour's purchase. There is a trapdoor at the back of that building which could tell some strange tales of what has passed through it. What? You don't mean bodies? I mean very much bodies, Watson. And I fear Neville St. Clair has entered that vile place never to leave it more. St. Clair? Hmm. Uh, but our trap shall be here. Uh, now, you'll, you'll come with me, won't you? Yes, if I can be of use. Oh, a trusty comrade is always of use. And a chronicler still more so. <laughs> My room with the Cedars is a double-bedded one. The Cedars? Yes, that's uh, Miss uh, Sinclair's house. Oh. I'm staying there while I conduct the inquiry. And where is it? Near Lee in Kent. We have a seven-mile drive before us. Right. Ah, uh, Jump up here. Right. All right, John, we shall uh, not need you. Right, Roger. No, there, there's half a crown. Oh, thank you. Look out for me tomorrow, about 11. Right, Roger. Right, Watson? Yes. Uh, up. Holmes drove in silence, lost in thought, while I sat beside him, curious to learn what this new quest might be, yet afraid to break in upon the current of his thoughts. We had driven several miles and were beginning to get to the fringe of the belt of suburban villas when he turned to me. You have a grand gift of silence, Watson. It makes you quite invaluable as a companion. What were you thinking about? What I should say to the woman who will meet us at the door tonight. Oh, you forget that I know nothing about it. Ah, yeah. I shall just have time to tell you the facts of the case before we get to leave. Maybe you can see a spark where all is dark to me. Well, I will certainly try. Oh, well, then. In May 1884, there came to Lee a Neville Sinclair, a gentleman who appeared to have plenty of money. He took a large villa and by degrees made friends in the neighbourhood. And in 1887, he married the daughter of a local brewer, by whom he has had two children. Uh, what is his occupation? Well, he has interest in several companies, apparently, and went into town, as a rule, in the morning, returning by the 514 from Cannon Street every night. Yeah, what age man is he? 37. He's of temperate habits, a good husband, and an affectionate father. And uh, still in a sound financial position? Well, his debts amount to £88.10, shillings, uh, while he has £220 standing to his credit at the bank. Huh. And this uh, Neville Sinclair is now missing. Mm. Last Monday, he went to town earlier than usual, remarking that he had two important commissions to perform and that he would bring his little boy home a box of bricks. Oh, Yes. Uh, now, by the merest chance, his wife received a telegram that same Monday that a parcel she was expecting was waiting for her through the offices of the Aberdeen Shipping Company, uh, located in Fresno Street. But that runs into Upper Swandham Lane, where I found you tonight. Exactly. And it is where Mrs. Sinclair found herself at 4.35 last Monday, on her way back to the station, and looking for a cab to take her out of a neighbourhood she did not much like, which is when she saw her husband. What, in the street? Uh, no, 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 no. At a window of the den in which you found me tonight. Good Lord. 
His face, she describes, is terribly agitated, and her quick feminine eye noted that, although he wore some dark coat, he wore neither collar nor necktie. Then he vanished, as if plucked back. What on earth did she do? She rushed into the place. I must see my husband. You can't come in here. But I must see him. I'm sure he's in some no, danger. Out, out, before I throw you out. But, but no, I... get out. Did she not fetch a policeman? By rare good fortune, she met in Fresno Street two constables with an inspector who accompanied her back. And what did they find? In the room where Mr. Sinclair had last been seen, no sign of him. <clears throat> you see? I told you he's not here. But I know I saw him. Well, he doesn't seem to be here now, madam. And who are you? Uh, just a poor cripple, sir. A beggar I am. This room I'm lucky enough to call home. And neither of you has seen anyone else in this room this afternoon? I've seen no one, sir. I told you he's not here. Well, madam, I... Look. Look at this box. <laughs> They're just child's bricks. So he had been there. All the results of a search pointed to an abominable crime. The window of the room overlooks water, which dries at low tide. Several drops of blood were found on the windowsill and on the floor. But no trace of the man. Of him? No. But all his clothes were found thrust away behind a curtain. Yes, so he must have gone out of the window. And it was high tide at the time of this tragedy, with the bloodstains giving little promise that he could save himself by swimming. And uh, what of the people there, this, uh, this, this Lasker, for example? Uh, of the vilest antecedents. Mm. But we know from Mrs. Sinclair's story that he was at the foot of the stair within a few seconds of her husband's appearance at the window. He could hardly be more than an accessory to the crime. Mm. But what about the clothes that were found? His defense is one of absolute ignorance. Then what of this, uh, this sinister cripple? Uh, his name is Hugh Boone, and his hideous face is one which is familiar to every man who goes much to the city. He's a professional beggar, or, though in order to avoid the police regulations, he pretends to a small trade in matches. No, but how can begging be a profession? I've watched the fellow more than once where he sits in Threadneedle Street and been surprised at the small rain of charity that descends into his greasy leather cap. Is there something to mark him out, then? His appearance, certainly. A shock of orange hair, a face disfigured by a horrible scar that has turned up the outer edge of his upper lip, and a pair of very penetrating dark eyes. He's so remarkable that no one can pass him without observing him. And a ready wit, too. This is the last human being whose eyes rested upon Neville Sinclair. Yes, but a cripple. I mean, what could he have done single-handed against a man in the prime of life? Oh, he is a cripple in the sense that he walks with a limp. But in other respects, he appears to be a powerful and well-nurtured man. Oh. But what happened? Was this man Boone arrested? Eventually. Mrs. Sinclair had fainted at the sight of the blood upon the window and been escorted home. Then Inspector Bradstreet, who had charge of the case, made a careful examination of the premises. And I imagine he found nothing. So he turned his attention to Boone and had him searched. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. What's this on your shirt sleeve? Do you deny this is blood? No, no, look. I cut my finger. And I was at the window just now. That's why there's some on the sill. Oh, yes. And this gentleman, Mr. Sinclair... Oh. 
Do you still say that you've never seen him? Never. Then how is it that his clothes are here? Well, it's as much a mystery to me as to you, Inspector. The lady actually saw her husband at this window. She must be mad, or else she was dreaming. You're the one who's dreaming, if you think I'll accept one word of what you're saying. Take him to the station. Right, sir. No, come I, along, you. I this tell way. you. Come I along. know nothing about oh, any God. of this. And did the ebbing tide reveal some clue? Yes, although they hardly found upon the mud bank what they'd feared to find. Uh, not the man's body, then? No, mm. but his coat. And what do you think they found in his pockets? Well, I'll be damned. Look at this, Constable. What's that, sir? Oh. Hundreds of pennies and halfpence, every pocket stuffed with yeah. No wonder the tide hadn't swept it away. But a human body is a different matter. There is a fierce eddy between the wharf and the house. But the other clothes were found in the room. I'm surely the body was not dressed in a coat alone. No, no. Uh, but suppose this man Boone had thrust Neville St. Clair through the window. It would instantly strike him that he must get rid of the telltale garments. Yes. In the act of throwing out the coat, he realises it will swim and not sink. Mm. Uh, so he stuffs it with the fruits of his beggary, which is in some secret hoard, and throws it out. Yes, and he would have done the same with the other clothes had he not heard the police on the stairs. Yes. Well, we will take that as a working hypothesis for want of a better. Mm. Is Boone still under arrest? Yes. But there has been nothing against him before, and his life appears to have been a very quiet and innocent one. So, the questions that have to be solved, yeah, I mean, what Neville Sinclair was doing in the opium den, what happened to him, and what Hugh Boone had to do with his disappearance, are still far from a solution. Mm. Mm. You know, I confess I cannot recall any case which looked at the first glance so simple, and yet which presented such difficulties. <sighs> hey, up, go on. Whilst Holmes had been detailing this singular series of events, we had left behind the last straggling houses of the great town and rattled along with a country hedge upon either side of us until we drove through two scattered villages. We are on the outskirts of Lee. Oh. See that light among the trees? Mm -hmm. That is the cedars. And beside that lamp sits a woman whose anxious ears have already, I have little doubt, caught the sound of our horse's feet. Now, are you sure I won't be intruding? You may rest assured that she will have nothing but a welcome for my friend and colleague. I hate to meet her there, Watson, when I have no news of her husband. Yes. Whoa, there. Whoa, whoa. We pulled up in front of a large villa standing in its own grounds. Leaving a stable boy who ran out in charge of the horse, Holmes and I walked across the drive to the front door. As we approached, the door flew open. Uh, Mrs. Sinclair. Well, no good news. None. No bad. No. Oh, thank God for that. Oh, but come in. You must be weary. You've had a long day. Uh, yeah, this is my friend, Dr. Watson. How do you do? Dr. Watson. He has been of most vital use to me in several of my cases, and a lucky chance has made it possible for me to bring him out and associate him with this investigation. I'm delighted to see you. You will, I am sure, forgive anything which may be wanting in our arrangements just at the moment. Oh, my dear madam, I am an old campaigner. And if I were not, I can very well see that no apology is needed. Thank you. If you would like some supper, there is some laid out. Oh, thank you. Thank you. 
She led us through the house into a well-lit dining room. Now, Mr. Holmes, I should very much like to ask you one or two plain questions, to which I beg that you will give a plain answer. Certainly, madam. Do not trouble about my feelings. I am not hysterical, nor do I intend to faint again. I simply wish to hear your real opinion. Upon what point? In your heart of hearts, do you think that Neville is alive? Frankly, now. Frankly, then, madam, I do not. You think that he was murdered? I I don't say that. Perhaps. And on what day did he meet his death? Monday. Then perhaps you'll be good enough to explain how it is that I have received this letter from him today. What? May I see it? Certainly. A rough envelope, Gravesend postmark... uh, and today's date... Oh, well, yesterday's, in fact. It's well after midnight. Yeah, quite correct, Watson. Coarse writing. This is surely not your husband's, ma'am. No, but the letter is. Whoever addressed the envelope had to go and inquire as to the address. How can you tell that? Ah, well, you see, the name is in perfectly black ink, which has dried itself. The rest is of the greyish colour, which shows that blotting paper has been used. Oh, There's been a pause between writing the name and the address. It's only a trifle, but there is nothing so important as trifles. Mm-hmm. Now, let's see the letter. Uh, there's been an enclosure here. Yes, there was a ring, his signet ring. I have it here. Oh. And you have no doubt that this is your husband's writing? None. Neville wrote those words. Dearest, do not be frightened. All will come well. There is a huge error which may take some little time to rectify Wait in patience. Neville. Written in pencil upon the flyleaf of a book. Octavo size, no watermark. Hmm. Posted in Gravesend by a man with a dirty thumb. And the flap has been gummed, unless I am much mistaken, by a person who had been, yes, chewing tobacco. So, the clouds lighten, Holmes. Yes. Though I should not venture to say that the danger is over. But he must be alive. Unless this is a clever forgery to put us off the scent. The ring, after all, proves nothing. It may have been taken from him. No, no, it is his very own writing. Uh, Very well. It may, however, have been written on Monday and only posted later. Well, that's possible. If so, much may have happened between You do not discourage me, Mr. Holmes. I know all is well with him. There is so keen a sympathy between us that I should know if evil came upon him. I have seen too much not to know that the impression of a woman may be more valuable than the conclusion of an analytical reasoner. And this letter is certainly a very strong piece of evidence to corroborate your view. But if your husband is alive and able to write to you, why should he remain away from you? I cannot imagine... It is unthinkable. And on Monday he made no remarks before leaving you? No. When you saw him at the window in Upper Swandham Lane, he only, as I understand, gave an inarticulate cry. Yes. A cry for help, you thought? Yes. But it might have been a cry of surprise, uh, astonishment at seeing you? It's possible. Hmm. And you thought he was pulled back? He disappeared so suddenly. Well, he might have leapt back. 
Your husband, as far as you could see, had his ordinary clothes on. But without his collar and tie. Yeah. Had he ever spoken of Swandham Lane or shown signs of taking opium? Never. Thank you, Mrs. Sinclair. We shall now have a little supper and then retire, for we may have a busy day tomorrow. <laughs> I was quickly between the sheets in the large and comfortable double-bedded room placed at our disposal, for I was weary after my night of adventure. Sherlock Holmes, however, was a man who, when he had an unsolved problem on his mind, would go for days without a rest. He would turn it over and over in his mind until he had either fathomed it or convinced himself that his data were insufficient. As I dropped off to sleep, I saw him sitting, silent, motionless, an old briar pipe between his lips, and he was still there when I was woken by the summer sun lighting up the room. But of the heap of tobacco I had seen beside him before I fell asleep, there was now no sign. Awake, Watson? Uh, yes, just about. Again for a morning drive? Oh, certainly. Well, then dress. No one is stirring yet, uh -huh. but I know where the stable boy sleeps. It was no wonder no one was stirring. When I glanced at my watch, I saw that it was twenty-five minutes past four. I had hardly finished dressing when Holmes returned with the news that the boy was preparing the trap. I, I think, Watson, that I deserve to be kicked from here to Charing Cross for being as blind as a mole. But I believe I have the key to the affair now. Do oh, really? Where is it? In the bathroom. What? I'm not joking. No, no, but I, I, I don't understand. Look, I've just been in there and I've got the solution in this Gladstone bag. Come on. In town, the earliest risers were just beginning to look sleepily from their windows as we drove through the streets on our way to Bow Street. At the police station, we found Inspector Bradstreet on duty. Ah, what can I do for you, Mr. Holmes? I called about that man, Boone. Ah, he's been brought up and remanded for further inquiries. You have them here? In the cells. Is he quiet? Oh, he gives no trouble. But he's a dirty scoundrel. Yeah, really? Dirty? Yes. It's all we can do to make him wash his hands. <laughs> and his face is as black as a tinker's. Oh, yes, I should very much like to see him. Oh, that's easily done. Oh, you can uh, leave your bag here. No, no, no I, I think I'll take it. He led us along a passage, through a barred door, and down a winding stair to a whitewashed corridor with a line of doors on either side. The third door on the right, uh, he's asleep, I expect, uh, but we can look through the panel. There you are. Holmes and I put our eyes to the grating. The prisoner was just as Holmes had described him. The scar that ran from eye to chin and exposed three teeth in a perpetual snarl was especially repulsive. He's a beauty, isn't he? He certainly needs a wash. I thought he might, and brought the tools with me. <laughs> Carrying a sponge in your bag, Mr. Holmes? <laughs> You're a funny one. But I don't know why not. There'll be some water in the jug. Watson, hmm? you restrain him. Yes, very well, Holmes.
Now then. Never in my life have I seen such a sight. Holmes rubbed the sponge vigorously across the beggar's face, and it began to peel away. Away went the horrid scar and the twisted lip, like the bark from a tree. Right. Let me introduce you to Mr. Neville St. Clair of Lee in the county of Kent. Oh, great heaven! It is the missing man. I know him from the photograph. Oh, pray, what am I charged with? With making away with Mr. Neville said... No, come. You can't be charged with that. Well, I've been 27 years in the force, but this really takes the cake. If I am Neville Sinclair, then it is obvious that no crime has been committed, and that therefore I am illegally detained. No crime, but a very great error has been committed. You would have done better to have trusted your wife. It was not my wife. It was my children. God help me, I would not have them ashamed of their father. What can I do? If you leave it to the court of law to clear the matter up, of course you can hardly avoid publicity. Yes. Uh, but on the other hand, if you can convince the police authorities that there is no possible case against you, I do not know that there is any reason that the details should find their way into the papers. I would have to make notes on anything you might tell us and submit it to the proper authorities. Of course. But then the case would never go into court at all. Oh, God bless you. I would have endured imprisonment, even execution, rather than have left my miserable secret as a family blot to my children. Neville Sinclair removed more of the makeup that had turned him into the hideous Hugh Boone and proceeded to tell us his story. After an excellent education in the North, he had travelled, become an actor, and finally a newspaper reporter in London. It was the combination of these last two that had led to the man with the twisted lip. My editor wished to have a series of articles on begging in the metropolis. I disguised myself and took up a station for seven hours in the city. When I returned home in the evening, I found, to my surprise, that I had received no less than twenty-six shillings and fourpence. Is that when you decided to become a professional beggar? No. I wrote my articles and thought little more of it until, some time later, I backed a bill for a friend and had a writ served on me for twenty-five pounds. So you went back to begging to pay it off, huh? I asked for a holiday from my employers, and in ten days I had enough money to pay the debt. Hmm. And so you threw up reporting? Well, it took me a week to earn that way what I could get in a day by smearing my face with a little paint, laying my cap on the ground and sitting still. But surely someone was in on your secret? Only the keeper of the opium den in Swandham Lane. Ah, the Lasker. A place from whence you could emerge every morning as a squalid beggar, and in the evenings transform yourself into a well-dressed man about town. <laughs> he was well paid for his room, so I knew my secret was safe. Yes. But as you grew richer, you grew more ambitious, moved out of town, married, without anyone having a suspicion as to your real occupation. My dear wife knew I had business in the city. She little knew what. But last Monday she came close. I'd finished for the day and was dressing when, to my horror, I saw her. I rushed back into the room, knowing the Lasker would not let her pass, and swiftly threw on my disguise as Hugh Boone. Hmm. You knew your normal clothes might betray you, so you sought to dispose of them. Your coat containing your takings went first. 
The others would have followed if the inspector here hadn't arrived. Uh, what about the blood? I cut my finger in my hurry to bundle the heavy coat out into the Thames. Ah. And the note? Note? What note? In the few moments before I was arrested, I scrawled a few words and entrusted it, together with my signet ring, to the Lascar. That note only reached her yesterday. <sighs> Good God. What a week she must have spent. We've been watching this, Lascar. He'd have found it difficult to post a letter unobserved. And now, what happens to Hugh Boone? If the police are to uh, hush this up, there must be no more of him. I swear it, by the most solemn oaths which a man can take. In that case, I think it is probable that no further steps will be taken. Although if you are found again, all must come out. Gentlemen, I am most grateful to you. Well... I am sure, Mr. Holmes, that we are very much indebted to you for having cleared the matter up. I wish I knew how you reached your results. <laughs> he reached this one, Inspector, by sitting up all night and consuming an ounce of tobacco. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, quite so. And now, Watson, if we drive to Baker Street, we shall just be in time for breakfast. Huh? <laughs> With the Twisted Lip by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, Roy Marsden played Sherlock Holmes, John Moffat, Dr. Watson, John Webb, Hugh Boone and Neville Sinclair, Moya Leslie, Mrs. Sinclair, John Newton, Inspector Bradstreet, and Garrard Green, the sinister Lascar in the Opium Den. The music was written by Joss Sanglier and played by Joss Sanglier and Elizabeth Fellows. The Man with the Twisted Lip was dramatised by Grant Eustace and directed by Michael Bartlett for Daedalus Productions. Okay, so we have the car payment, the rent, utilities, and the repair bill. <sighs> what should we do? I know. I'm going to CashNetUSA.com. I can apply in minutes, get an instant decision, and if approved, we could have the money in our account as soon as the same business day. When you need money fast, be the hero. Go to CashNetUSA.com to apply for the money you need now. The exact timing as to when your loan funds will be available will be determined by your banking institution.